0: Just as I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today.
1: We hear the I Have a Dream speech every Martin Luther King Jr. Day and every few days in February. This speech is without a doubt Martin's most iconic, but this speech may have been used to paint a false narrative of who MLK was. Martin Luther King was more than a dreamer, and his dream extended beyond just little black boys and girls holding hands with little white boys and girls. Martin made that I Have a Dream speech in 1963, and over the next five years, Martin would go on to face challenges that he hadn't yet considered when speaking on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. My name is Baudelaire, and today on The Soapbox, we're going to talk about the other side of MLK, the side we never got to see, and weren't talked too much about. The side that proved inconvenient to those in power and will be swept under the rug after his death. What's that box for?
0: It's my soapbox. If you have important things to say, you use a soapbox. On the Lincoln Memorial that day in August 63, and you said, I had a dream. Did that dream envision that you could see a war in Asia preventing the federal government doing for the Negroes, preventing the society doing for the Negroes that which you think had to be done? no i didn't envision that then i must confess that that period was a great period of hope for me and uh, i'm sure for many others all across the nation many of of the negroes who had about lost hope saw a solid decade of progress in the south and uh, in 1954 which was uh, i mean 64 1963, nine years after the Supreme Court's decision to be in the march on Washington, meant a great deal. It was a high moment, a great watershed moment. But I must confess that uh, that dream that I had that day has, at many points, turned into a nightmare. Now, I'm not one to lose hope. I keep on hoping. Uh, I still have faith in the future. But I've had to analyze many things over the last few years and I would say over the last few months. I've gone through a lot of soul such and agonizing moments and I've come to see that uh, we have uh, many more difficult days ahead and some of the old optimism was a little superficial and now it must be tempered with a solid realism and I think the realistic fact is that we still have a long, long way to go.
1: Martin's dream had become a nightmare for a few different reasons. One being that the black community was moving in a much more radical direction after feeling not enough had changed after the Civil Rights Act of 1964. That act was supposed to have prohibited discrimination based off race, color, religion, and sex by federal and state governments, but it was barely enforced, especially in the South. The second reason was the nation's attention had shifted from civil rights to the now ongoing war in Vietnam. And finally, the nation as a whole was moving in a more materialistic direction Integration especially exasperated that sense in the black community because black dollars were leaving the community and being spent in places that the customer wasn't allowed just years before. This leads us to the philosophy Martin would adopt and hold until the end of his life and the main focus of today's episode, a speech titled The Three Evils of Society that Martin gave on August thirty-first, 1967. I believe, and many who are knowledgeable about the life of Martin Luther King would probably agree, that this speech paints a better picture of who he was than the cliché, I have a dream speech. His analyzation of the three evils also ring true today when the flaws in our society that were hidden before are exposed now more than ever. But I suspect
2: that we are now experiencing the coming to the surface of a triple-pronged sickness that has been lurking within our body politic from its very beginning. That is the sickness of racism, Excessive materialism and militarism. Not only is this our nation's dilemma, it is the plague of Western civilization.
1: The first evil Martin would address in his speech would be the issue he was most committed to uprooting in his lifetime. Racism. But in the three evils and during this period, Martin doesn't speak about racism as, you know, not being able to share a lunch counter or sit where you'd like on a bus. At this point in his life, Martin saw racism as a much deeper issue that would only be solved by a true and honest investment on the part of the U.S. government. This wouldn't be done just by passing a law outlawing segregation. Instead, structural racism would have to be addressed. First, he addressed the white American reaction to racial progress.
2: Ever since the birth of our nation, white America has had a schizophrenic personality on the question of race. She has been torn between cells, a self in which she proudly professed the great principles of democracy, and a self in which she madly practiced the antithesis of democracy. This tragic duality has produced a strange indecisiveness and ambivalence toward the Negro, causing America to take a step backward simultaneously with every step forward on the question of racial justice.
1: Van Jones, the CNN commentator, spoke on CNN after our current president's election and called his winning a result of a white backlash. The white working class felt they were losing their country to immigrants and to progressives, and they wanted it back. The gains of seeing a beautiful black family in the White House didn't mean much in terms of progress for this sector of the American population. And in response to what they saw, they elected an arrogant, racist, and sexist bigot to command the ship and restore order. These folks, and even many liberals, laugh at the idea of structural racism. And and you can even find some asking blacks why they don't lift themselves up from their bootstraps, or they start to talk about how hard they or their ancestors worked from nothing to get to where they are in America today. None of it was white privilege, and that is something they're usually willing to swear by. In an interview with Mike Wallace, Martin spoke to that idea. Even Senator Jacob Javits asked the question recently, he said that he was a slum resident, but he and some of his fellow Jews were able
0: to make it out of the ghetto on the Lower East Side. The same thing is true with lots of Irish, Italians. And he asked the question, why the Negro finds it so difficult to make his way up out of the ghetto?
1: You well, did. number one,
0: no other racial group has been a slave on American soil. Uh, it's nice to say other people were down and they got up. They were not slaves on American soil. The other thing is that the Negro has had high visibility and because of the prejudices existing in this country, his color has been against him. It's been against him uh, and they've used this to keep him from moving up. And the final analysis, when you say to a man that you are in this position because of your race or because of your color. You say to that man that he can never get out of it. Other racial groups have been able maybe to change the accent or change the names, but the Negro can't.
1: In another interview, Martin spoke to MSNBC about the black community's lack of economic aid after the Emancipation Proclamation. There's a family guy skit, actually, about slavery, where the white man just takes the chain off and asks the former slave, are we cool? And as funny as that may sound to some, that's basically what happened after the Civil War a group of people who were forcefully illiterate and had nothing to call their own were freed to fend for themselves.
0: Absolutely necessary. The other thing is that America freed the slaves in 19, I mean 1863 through the Emancipation Proclamation of Abraham Lincoln, but gave the slaves no land or nothing in reality, and as a matter of fact, to, to get started on. At the same time, America was giving away millions of acres of land in the West and the Midwest, which meant that there was a willingness to give the white peasants from Europe an economic base and yet it refused to give its black peasants from Africa who came here involuntarily in chains and had worked free for 244 years any kind of economic base. And so emancipation for the Negro was really freedom to hunger, it was freedom uh, to the winds and rains of heaven, it was freedom without food to eat or land to cultivate, and therefore it was freedom and famine at the same time. And when white Americans tell the Negro to lift himself by his own bootstraps, they don't, o- they don't look over the legacy of slavery and segregation. I believe we ought to do all we can and seek to lift ourselves by our own bootstraps. But uh, it's a cruel jest to say to a bootless man that he ought to lift himself by his own bootstraps. And many Negroes, by the thousands and millions, have been left bootless as a result of all of these years of oppression and as a result of a society that deliberately made his color a stigma and something worthless and degrading.
1: And then you have people that see the black community riot like was done in Watts in 1965, LA in 1992, or Baltimore in 2015 and call it stupid and ridicule the community for destroying their neighborhood. In his Three Evils of Society speech, Martin would address the riots place in American society.
0: But in the final analysis, a riot is the language of the unheard what is it that America has failed to hear? It has failed to hear that the plight of the Negro poor has worsened over the last few years. It has failed to hear that the promises of freedom and justice have not been met. And it has failed to hear that large segments of white society are more concerned about tranquility and the status quo than about justice, equality, and humanity. And so in a real sense, our nation's summers of riots are caused by our nation's winters of delay.
1: Now, that's a somewhat popular quote from Martin Luther King, but it's a pretty radical statement. So radical, it follows the logic of a statement from another famous leader.
0: Uh, uh, immediate solutions. And the solution that the Honorable Elijah Muhammad has is immediate. It's and more you practical. think they're not moving fast enough? Well, they're moving as fast as they can. But that's not fast enough for the masses of black people. If a person is sitting on a warm stove and you get ready to let him up, no matter how slow you are, he has patience because it's only warm. But the masses of black people who are sitting on a hot stove, they're impatient. And no matter how fast you say progress is being made toward letting them up, that progress is not fast enough for them.
1: Both leaders arrive at similar and still relevant points. Blacks and all oppressed people will only put up with so much for so long before a riot is inevitable. And before we criticize the people and call them stupid for destroying their own community, let's first criticize and focus on fixing that which causes riots, unemployment, police brutality, and the growing wealth gap, just to name a few reasons. Put yourself in the shoes of a rioter. Give them the respect of being human and somewhat logical. It seems when speaking about race today, blacks have been made to seem completely illogical to the point where we're hesitant to use the race card in fear of coming off as irrational. And when speaking about our white peers, specifically our liberal white peers, Martin pointed out that they, in most cases, are only willing to do so much in aid of the black community.
0: Do you think white people in this country, and I'm talking about non-segregation, as people devoid, or thinking they're devoid of racism, do you have any idea of what they want the Negro to be in America? Well, it depends on the level that we are talking here. Uh, Because I think you have to make a distinction between the people who are genuinely and absolutely committed in the white community on the question of of racial equality. And I must confess that I think they are a very small minority. I think the vast majority of white Americans uh, will go but so far. It's a kind of installment plan for equality. And uh, they're always looking for an excuse uh, to go, but so
1: far. The northern cities are able to play more liberal than the southern counterparts because, truth be told, the black community doesn't pose nearly the economic or political threat that we do in the south. Let's look at Boston and New York, for example. Both cities, though in the liberal north, have deep-seated inequities in housing and the school systems. A 2015 report found that the household median net worth in Boston was $247,000 for whites, just $8 for U.S. blacks, $12,000 for Caribbean blacks, and $3,000 for Puerto Ricans. Let me repeat for y'all that it was $247,000 for whites. And a recent UCLA study of public schools in New York found that New York City remained the most segregated city for African-American students and the second most segregated for Latino students, And this is 65 years after the Supreme Court's ruling to desegregate the schools. And though outright racism is not in style in the liberal pockets of the country, you may still feel the silence of your white friends every time a black man is murdered by the police. You may hear them say, well, what should we do? When the answer is clear. Racism is a disease that is theirs. By theirs, I mean it is their issue to solve. James Baldwin once said that the white man invented the nigger. We as black people are not niggers. We're humans. For what is it in European society that created the need for an entire subjugated race? 500 years have passed since the institution of transatlantic slavery, and the white world has yet to answer this question. Black people don't have a problem. White people have a problem. Black people's only problem is that white people have a problem. So it must be understood that the evil that is racism is alive and well across our country. And as long as black people aren't taught our history in the schools or our kids are criminalized simply for the color of their skin, there isn't much hope for the future of this country. But on to our second evil of society.
2: The second aspect of our afflicted society is extreme materialism. An Asian writer has portrayed our dilemma in candid terms. He says, you call your thousand material devices labor-saving machinery. Yet you are forever busy with the multiplying of your machinery. You grow increasingly fatigued, anxious, nervous, dissatisfied. Whatever you have, you want more. And wherever you are, you want to go somewhere else. Your devices are neither time-saving nor soul-saving machinery. There are so many sharp spurs which urge you on to invent more machinery, and to do more business. This tells us something about our civilization that cannot be cast aside as a prejudice charge by an Eastern thinker who is jealous of Western prosperity.
1: You may remember that clip from last week's episode. With inventions like the internet, smartphones, and social media, we've grown able to do things we once could have never imagined, but at the same time, we're not monitored, These resources have led to a rise in anxiety, depression rates, the formation of hate groups, and the overall antisocial behavior that so many now show. I'm not here to say all our smartphones should be thrown away and we should never go on the Internet again, but perhaps our relationship with technology needs a reappraisal. If you can't go a day without it, then it's more of an addiction than a tool. And if you wouldn't say it out loud, then you might not really believe it. But it doesn't begin and end with social media and the Internet. Human inventions have only been used to create more and do more work, as Martin said. At no point have we considered shifting to a four-day work week or a five-hour workday with as far as we've come, technologically speaking, since those original ideas became commonplace. So what is the goal of technology really? Is it to make our lives easier? Because a good argument can be made that, aside from advances in medicine, it really hasn't. And at what point do we allow the machines to make our lives easier rather than add more stress? Martin's criticism of excessive materialism grows into a critique on capitalism, which I did a lot of in the previous episode. So we won't stay here for too long. But one thing it is important to hear is Martin point out the real battery in the back of capitalism.
2: It is this moral lag in our thing oriented society that blinds us to the human realities around us and encourages us in the greed and exploitation which create the sector of poverty in the midst of wealth. Again, we have deluded ourselves into believing the myth that capitalism grew and prospered out of the Protestant ethic of hard work and sacrifice. The fact is that capitalism was built on the exploitation and suffering of black slaves, and continues to thrive on the exploitation of the poor, both black and white, both here and abroad.
1: For both American and British economies in the 19th century, The shift from agricultural to industrial relied on cotton textile factories, which were the first factories in the industrial system. None of that would have been possible without cheap cotton, which was able to be cheap via free slave labor. Cotton would become the dominant driver of U.S. economic growth. And from 1820 to 1860, over half of all money earned by the U.S. overseas came from cotton. Like I said in an earlier episode, when the U.S. achieved independence, it was irrelevant on the world stage, economically speaking. And by the time the Civil War started, it'd be the second biggest economy in the world, second only to England, who was number one and also benefiting heavily from slavery in the Americas. Now let's fast forward to today. Today we have coltan, a necessary mineral in smartphones, which is 80% of which is found in the Democratic Republic of Congo in Africa, where armed militias control mines and children are in many cases the victims of forced labor. Should we get rid of the invention? No. But should we demand that this world-changing technology begins to be produced in a humane way so Western progress can cease to be on the back of African suffering? Yes. Staunch capitalists, when pointing out the benefits of capitalism, usually bring up the nonprofit sector. Martin also addressed this in his speech.
2: Victor Hugo could have been thinking of 20th century America when he wrote, there's always more misery among the lower classes than there is humanity in the higher classes. (laughs) The time has come for America to face the inevitable choice between materialism and humanism. We must devote at least as much to our children's education and the health of the poor as we do to the care of our automobiles and the building of beautiful, impressive hotels.
1: We all know that the 400 richest Americans own more wealth than the bottom 150 million Americans, right? Well, 30% of all donations to nonprofits come from that group of Americans, that 400. Often they're for the purpose of tax write-offs, but either way, a donation is a donation, right? The wealthy usually make the case that they do better with the money than a higher tax rate would do, but never name tangible gains better than free health care or free tuition to public universities. And donations are usually given to large companies that provide a better look for the donor than grassroots organizations that do real work. This critic of capitalism version of Martin was never shown to me in school, and when I first heard this speech, I couldn't help but wonder why. All I did know about Martin was that, He fought against racism and at the end of the lecture about him, it was thrown in that he was very much against the Vietnam War. But it wasn't as much of the Vietnam War specifically that Martin was against, but militarism as a whole.
2: The final phase of our national sickness is the disease of militarism. Nothing more clearly demonstrates our nation's abuse of military power than our tragic adventure in Vietnam.
1: Vietnam was the military action of the day, so to modernize what Martin is saying here, you could think of the Iraq War and the conflict in the Middle East, which in a lot of ways are similar to the U.S. involvement in Vietnam. The main similarity being the guise that the U.S. was in these places trying to spread the ideals of democracy and cultural freedom, when the only democracies the U.S. respects are the ones it holds a pseudo-control over. And in Iraq, like Vietnam, the U.S. was attempting to install just that. Martin saw the war as a moral issue, though it wasn't a popular stance to take at the time.
0: I weighed the criticisms that I would get. I thought about even the fact that some Negroes wouldn't understand and some respectable Negro leaders who were more concerned about being invited to the White House than invited to
2: the cause of justice would be against me.
0: of this. And as I waited and as I prayed over it, something said to me that you got to speak on this issue. All right. If you don't speak on it and others don't speak, I'm not going to give up. I'll have even the rocks to crowd against this war. It's an evil wall. And no matter where it leads, no matter what abuses. It
2: may bring, I'm going to tell the truth.
1: Before, after, and during the war in Vietnam, the U.S. would be involved in some of the most horrific war crimes in history. From the atomic bombs dropped on Japan to the My Lai Massacre in Vietnam, where 500 villagers, men, women, and children, were slaughtered by U.S. troops. More recently, in 2004, in a prison outside of Baghdad, U.S. troops tortured, executed, and took humiliating photos of Iraqi prisoners. Of course, I'm not speaking on the entire military, but even when these war crimes occur, there's no real way for the U.S. government to be held accountable, because as the most powerful nation in the world, they get to decide the rules. Even the U.N. only has so much influence over U.S. decisions. And this power isn't because of a super high moral ground the U.S. has but just because of its military strength.
2: But our moral lag must be redeemed. When scientific power outruns moral power, we end up with guided missiles and misguided
1: men. Fifty years later, the U.S. has been involved in the overthrow of regimes in countries all over the world, like Laos, Chile, Cambodia, Chad, Nicaragua, Panama, El Salvador, and Haiti, just to name a handful. What's important to note here is that never did the U.S. overthrow a government that was pro-the U.S. So what does that say about their intentions? Also, what does it say that the U.S. was using its military might all over the world to get what it wanted, while wanting the oppressed people of its country to be patient and protest peacefully? Why be all over the world, quote-unquote, fighting for freedom, when there is freedom to be fought for in your own backyard. Above
2: all, the war in Vietnam has revealed what Senator Fulbright calls our nation's arrogance of power. We are are arrogant in professing to be concerned about the freedom of foreign nations while not setting our own house in order.
1: Just to give you guys an idea of how ridiculous U.S. military spending is, in 2015, the U.S.'s total discretionary spending was $1.1 trillion. The military accounted for 54% of that. For the sake of comparison, education accounted for 6%, as did veterans' benefits. And food and agriculture, that accounted for 1%. In 2018, the U.S. spent almost $650 billion on its military, while the second-highest spending country in the world, China, spent $250 billion.
2: A nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death.
1: Imagine the hypocrisy of wanting MLK to preach nonviolence at home while the U.S. drops bombs all over Southeast Asia. The U.S., the so-called protector of the free world, introduced napalm in Vietnam and was just 20 years removed from dropping two atomic bombs on Japan, both of which have had lasting effects to this very day. The U.S. international involvement has always been done under the guise of spreading ideals of freedom and democracy. But in reality, the U.S. military's involvements in foreign affairs have always been connected to Wall Street interests, more so than actual threats against the freedom of Americans or the freedom of people in those countries. By not heeding the warning of people like Martin Luther King, it could be argued, I would definitely be one of those people, that the U.S. could have avoided a lot of the political and military blunders that it suffered in the past half century. The Three Evils of Society speech is a landmark speech made by possibly the greatest American to ever live. This speech, instead of being swept under the rug as just one of MLK's speeches, should be studied by high school students all over the country.
2: When machines and computers, profit motives and property rights are considered more important than people, the giant triplets of racism, economic exploitation and militarism are incapable of being conquered. A civilization can flounder as readily in the face of moral bankruptcy as it can through financial bankruptcy. A true revolution of values will soon cause us to question the fairness and justice of many of our past and present policies. We are called to play the Good Samaritans on life's roadside, but that will only be an initial act. One day the whole Jericho Road must be transformed so that men and women will not be beaten and robbed as they make their journey through life. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It understands that an edifice which produces beggars
1: needs restructuring. Now, before I go, I want to ask you, who killed Martin Luther King? James Earl Ray was convicted of the murder, but many, including Martin's own wife, Coretta, believe the government may have been involved
0: believe that the FBI had uh, something to do with that conspiracy. It seems to me that that uh, the surveillance that my husband underwent as he traveled around the world by the FBI and the things that have already been revealed that are on record point toward the FBI having certainly known what was happening. And if there was some conspiracy there uh, that they should have known who the people were that were involved because he was under constant surveillance. And I cannot believe that they would not have known about all the plots and all the people and where they were at uh, at various times.
1: I should note that in 1999, the King family won a civil lawsuit against a man named Lloyd Jowers. The jury adopted a verdict offered by the parties, finding that Jowers, in quote, Others, including government agencies, unquote, participated in a conspiracy to assassinate Dr. King. Now, I also ask you, why would the United States' own FBI be an adversary of one of the greatest heroes this country has ever seen? Why is it that we are not given a full image of Dr. King? Why are we given a diet version of him that focuses on a speech he made in 1963 when he died in 1968 and he only grew more politically active? His own son, Martin III, spoke on the convenient appreciation of his dad and the image we are given of who his dad was.
2: 68
0: was a time when your father's popularity was waning. Mom used to say something like, because his voice is silenced, now he's loved. What does that mean? We sort of dumbed down dad to some degree. He was a doer, not just a dreamer. He talked about what could become, but he left us a blueprint for how that could be manifested. Leading the march, the Reverend Martin Luther King. Dad was really radical and and revolutionary, and America doesn't understand that yet.
1: You can go to bonos.com for the full versions of all the audio clips used in this episode. That's b-a-u-k-n-o-w-s.com. And as is the case with all episodes of the Soapbox, I'm welcoming questions, concerns, comments, whatever you have. Just use the voice memo feature on your phone and record what you have to say. There's no time limit and feel free to give shout outs or whatever. Bonus episodes will come out sporadically addressing these thoughts from the people. Just email your voice memo to lasoapboxpod at gmail.com. That's P O D at gmail.com. Also, the best voice memo each week will receive a gift from the show either a book relating to your topic or a free t-shirt. You can follow me on Instagram, at Bo Again, that's B-A-U-K-N-O-W-S. Or on Twitter, at Bo That's B-A-U-D-E-L-A-I-R-E. That is all for this week. Thank you for listening to The Soapbox.
2: And we say to our nation tonight, we say to our government, we even say to our FBI, we will not be harassed we will not make a butchery of our conscience we will not be intimidated and we will be heard